Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guests on this episode are two Brookings scholars whose research illuminates the challenges facing the American middle class and offers solutions that can help people achieve the American dream. Isabel Sawhill is a senior fellow in economic studies, and Richard Reeves, also a senior fellow in economic studies, is director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. Together, they are co-authors of A New Contract with the Middle Class, a short book of policy solutions to improve the well-being of middle-class Americans. Reeves and Sawhill suggest big new policies that can flip the script on many of the challenges that afflict middle-class Americans today. You can get your own free copy of the contract while supplies last. Just visit this episode's page on our website, brookings.edu slash bcp, and find the link in the show notes. Stay tuned until the end of the interview for a way to participate in the conversation about revitalizing the middle class. Also on today's episode, David Wessel, Senior Fellow and Director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings, explains the Federal Reserve's recent statement on revising its long-term goals, including a revision to its inflation approach. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. You can follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. First up, here's David Wessel with another economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Financial markets hang on every word uttered by Federal Reserve officials. Most people don't. People should pay more attention. The Fed influences the economic lives of all of us, the rates we pay on car loans and mortgages, the rates we get on our bank deposits and money market funds, how much our local governments have to pay to borrow and thus tax us, how willing our employers will be to borrow, to expand and invest, whether the financial system, the circulatory system of the economy can function smoothly even at times of crisis. After a bit of hesitation, the Fed rescued the economy in 2008, before Congress finally showed up. And in the recent COVID crisis, the Fed moved swiftly and forcefully, turning all the pages of the 2008 playbook and writing some new ones in a hurry. Congress tells the Fed to aim for maximum employment and price stability. That's the law. And then it tells the Fed to figure out what that means and how to achieve those goals. That approach The elected representatives of the people set the goals and the independent experts at the central bank figure out how to define and achieve them has worked pretty well for the past 40 years. In 2012, the Fed issued a short statement of its long-term goals and monetary strategy. After a long review, it recently revised that statement. It said a few things that are worth noting. One, back in 2012, the Fed defined price stability as 2% inflation. Its new statement says that after periods of below 2% inflation, like the one we've been experiencing for the past decade, it will seek to compensate with periods of above 2% inflation, so that on average, inflation is at 2%. Two, back in 2012, the Fed suggested it could know in advance roughly at what level the unemployment rate would fall so low that it would trigger unwelcome wage and price increases. Well, it turns out it's hard to accurately know in advance what that unemployment rate trigger is. So the Fed downgraded that concept and said, in effect, it's going to let the labor market improve until it sees more inflation than it wants, rather than relying exclusively on the unemployment rate as a measure and on some economic model that tries to predict the safe rate. 
That's nice to know, but so what? For now, the Fed is focused on helping the economy recover from the pandemic. After all, employment is very high, inflation is still below target, so the Fed is going to keep interest rates low and keep buying bonds and keep begging Congress to do something more on the tax and spending front to get us out of this hole. Where this new statement will become particularly important is when the pandemic recedes and the economy heals. The Fed is signaling that it will be very slow to raise interest rates and otherwise avoid hitting the monetary brakes. It will not, as it has done in the past, raise rates preemptively to avoid inflation going over 2% or to keep inflation from falling below some predetermined level. It will, to change metaphors, let the economy run hot, perhaps hotter than its predecessors did, because it believes that will allow the greatest number of people in the U.S., particularly those at the bottom, to benefit. Now, in a break from tradition, the Fed conducted this review with substantial public participation, including a series of Fed Listens events around the country. And now it's posted speeches and FAQs and research papers on its website that you can look at. The Hutchins Center has done a new post in our Hutchins Center Explained series by my colleague Tyler Powell and me that explains what the Fed has done in a little more detail and what it means. You should check it out. And now here's my interview with Isabel Sawhill and Richard Reeves on the new contract with the middle class. Bell and Richard, welcome to you both back to the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. Great to see you, Fred. Thanks for having us back, Fred. So we're here to talk today about this new contract with the middle class that is rolling out from Brookings very soon. Can you address first, why do you call it a contract with the middle class as opposed to a contract for the middle class? I'm so glad you opened with that question, Fred, because Bell and I spent many hours talking about this. You've picked up what is a non-trivial difference, and it's very explicitly with. That is in recognition of a whole theme of the contract, which is that it is like a contract should be, is with. It's a two-way street. It's a partnership. It's not for. And we don't think of middle-class Americans as somehow these inert vessels just waiting for good things to flow into them from the government. That's the danger of a for approach. But actually, instead, to think of this as a partnership between the collective and the government and individuals and families themselves. Middle-class Americans are not just waiting for the government to make their life better. They want the government's help, but they also want their own agency and to kind of figure out for themselves what they want from life. And so this issue of partnership and has really come out very strongly. So yes, not for, to be unfair to both left and right, the left tend to be about the four. Here's all the things the government's going to do for you. And the right tend to be about why government's a problem and you should do everything for yourself. Everybody who actually lives in the real world knows that it's always a partnership. I might give a couple of examples of what we mean by partnership when we get to our policy ideas. First of all, we really want people to be adequately rewarded when they're at their jobs, but we do expect them to work. This is not about handouts. A second example is we want everybody to have a chance to get at least two years of college or technical training, so they'll have the skills that are needed in the 21st century, but we're not going to make college free for everyone. We're going to ask them to provide some service to their country, one year of service for every two years of free college. A third example would be in the health arena. 
There's been a lot of discussion in recent times about access to health care, and we think there should be access to health care, but we also think people have a responsibility to make sure that they do things that will make their own lives healthier. And this contract with the middle class is one part of a much larger body of work that is rolling out under the auspices of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative this fall. This is just a preview of the contract with the middle class. Can you talk about what that larger project is all about? Sure. So the Future of the Middle Class Initiative is a relatively new initiative at three years old at Brookings that Bell and I have both been working on. And it reflects both our own interests as expressed in our most recent books. Bell's book, The Forgotten Americans, is explicitly about a group in the middle and middle class, working class who haven't been flourishing economically over the last few decades. And my own book, Dream Hoarders, which is about the pulling away of the top 20% from everybody else, are very much focused on this issue of class inequality and kind of class fractures in the US and this group in the middle who seem to some extent to have been neglected. And the initiative itself, which actually was partly amplified by President John Allen's concern for this group, has conducted a whole range of work on housing led by Jenny Schutz, on automation led by Marcus Casey, education by Sarah Reber and so on, as well as by Bell and myself. And Bell actually has been doing a lot of work around paid leave and working time, partly in partnership with AEI. And so to some extent, this particular contract and the other pieces of work that are coming out over the next few weeks and months, which we're really excited about and excited to see how people react to, is partly a kind of reflection of this years-long project that we've been engaged in to try and see what can be done, not just to describe the problems of the middle class, because there's a lot of that going on, but also to try and set out some really concrete solutions. I might just add briefly, Fred, that we also have gotten out and talked to actual middle class individuals and families. We've made a point of doing that. We've been to five different areas in the United States all across the country. So talked to a great diversity of people and done a lot of follow-up personal interviews even during the COVID pandemic. So let's step back to about the 30,000 foot level and address a really important question, which is, what is the middle class? How do you define the middle class? Who's in the middle class? Am I in the middle class? And so on. Well, there's no one correct definition of the middle class. The fact is that most Americans, if you ask them what they are, they will tell you that they are middle class. Although one middle class individual that I talked to said she was in the holding on by her fingernails class, which gets a little bit at the dilemma here. But for purposes of analysis, we decided to define them as the middle 60% of the population by income. That includes working age people with incomes between about 40,000 and incomes of about a little over $150,000 a year. And the average income of a three-person family in the middle class is about 70000 And does the income range consider different costs of living in different places around the country? Well, the numbers that Bell just gave are national numbers, because we want to look at the national middle class. But then when we go to some of the places Bell's talked about, to interview members of the middle class, we do take into account cost of living because obviously the money will vary by place. But though those numbers that Bells has given are nationally based. And I will also say that there's something about the ideal of being middle class 
in America, which is important. And for those who haven't heard me on this podcast before, Fred may not know, haven't been able to tell already that I'm not originally from America. I'm a proud US citizen now. And actually one thing that strikes you as an immigrant is that there's something quite fundamentally middle class about American values. And by that, I mean, it's distinct from either this idea of a class of people who are dependent on handouts, gratefully receiving handouts from others. That's quite un-American. But so is the idea of a kind of leisured aristocracy, right? Just living off capital. That's quite un-American too. So there is something potentially quite equalizing and quite solidaristic about the idea of the middle class in America, which is in danger of being lost, because of the way middle class are being left behind. But nonetheless, is it actually, we would argue, quite a central American value. I want to dive into the real substance of this contract with the middle class. It's not a long document, but it's very dense. And it's framed around what you call five foundations for a good life. I really love that. Five foundations for a good life. Just briefly, if you could state what those are, but also why do you arrange the contract around the five foundations rather than through, for example, the policy problems that you're trying to solve for? Well, the five principles are that people need money. They need material resources, obviously. They also need enough time to do all the other things in life that need attending to. They need strong relationships with their family, with their friends, with their community. And they need good health. That's obviously very critical. We all know that in the middle of a pandemic. And finally, they really need to feel respected. They need to respect themselves, but they need to respect others as well. And this sense of community, we think, is being lost. Too much tribalism, too many divisions. The Future of the Middle Class Initiative has a mission to improve the quality of life of the American middle class. That's a phrase that just gets thrown around very easily in policy circles and others. But what we've done, we really dig into that and actually say, well, what is a good quality of life? And it's a very difficult question to answer because it will vary from person to person. One of our other principles is pluralism. One size doesn't fit all, and what's good for Fred isn't necessarily good for Bell and good for Richard. So we really welcome that kaleidoscopic diversity of the US as another of its strengths. But on the other hand, there are these clear common themes which emerge from a very rich literature on subjective well-being, which we've had people like Mark Fabian write for us on and that Bell has dived into. These five themes emerge very strongly from the literature as very important to most people. And then the groups of middle class Americans that we've spoken to, they really did amplify. So I wouldn't say they came directly from that qualitative work, but they really were echoed very, very strongly. And I think in some ways you can argue from the negative point of view too, is that, look, there are lots of things you want to do differently. But actually, if you don't have the time you need to do the things you want to do, and you don't have enough material resources to not be worrying about money, and you don't have good relationships, and you don't feel good about your health, or you're not in good health, and you don't feel respected, it's actually quite hard to have a good quality of life. And those are actually relatively uncontroversial statements when you take them to middle class Americans. And so rather than build the contract around a standard list of policies, if you like, right? That would be a standard way of doing it. We've deliberately founded it on the things that matter to people. And then we've asked, what, if anything, can policy do in that area to promote that? And the answer is more in some areas than others, but we're trying to be faithful to what matters to people rather than what is convenient to policymakers. And those two things are not always the same thing. Well, this contract is rich with analysis and solutions. So let's dive into those five ingredients for a good life and give listeners kind of a sense of what they can expect when they read the full thing. So let's start with money. 
We know money matters for a variety of reasons. It's nice to have money. But what do the data show about the middle class and money that is particularly worrying for you? The first problem that we identify is that if you look at family incomes amongst the middle class, after they've paid their taxes and after they've received any benefits that are due to them, we look at the growth over the last four decades or so, it turns out that their incomes are growing more slowly than the incomes of either the rich or the poor. Now, I think most people know that their incomes are growing less rapidly than those of the rich, but it was a bit of a surprise to us that they were also growing less rapidly than those of the poor. That's largely, though, because the poor are eligible for more benefits, especially health benefits, than are the middle class. Another problem is wages. Wages have been pretty stagnant, especially for men. So we need to really address that problem. And then finally, we find that mobility, upward mobility over a generation's time has declined. That's not a new finding, but it is a very striking finding that as children are being brought up nowadays, their parents are quite distressed about whether they're going to have an opportunity to achieve the American dream. I'll just underline a couple of Bell's points. I think that it's fair to say that the people at the top are doing very well in the labor market and tend to be well-educated and their earnings are going up. And the people at the bottom have at least to some extent been supported by the safety net, which has been somewhat expanded. But the people in the middle are the ones who have actually been suffering the most. And just to pick up the point about wages, your wage growth for the top fifth since 79 has been 31%. For the middle quintile, middle fifth, has been 6%. So you've seen wage growth five times as quick in that top fifth as in that middle fifth. And whilst wages aren't everything in terms of income, they're the bulk of it for most families. And so you really do see how this wage inequality has then translated into household income inequality. And for those who don't then have significant amounts of government benefit to make up for that, they're the ones who've been falling behind. Another really interesting aspect of this, Fred, is the fact that when you look at this income growth amongst middle class families, virtually all of it is due to the fact that there are a lot more two earners than there used to be. It's really women's entry into the labor force and the fact that they are earning higher wages than they used to that has kept the middle class afloat. But we're now getting to a point in our history where there aren't a lot more women to be brought into the labor force. A broad set of policy proposals that you describe in the contract has to do with cutting income taxes for the middle class and also eliminating many of the very popular tax deductions. Can you talk about how those proposals would work and also how you overcome some of the very political objections that a lot of people have to eliminating things like the mortgage interest deduction? Well, just because a tax deduction is popular doesn't mean it's a good idea. I think that's the first point to say, in fact, almost an inverse relationship. So we certainly do propose removing inefficient and unfair tax deductions like the mortgage interest deduction, which also make the tax system in the US unnecessarily complex and time consuming for US taxpayers. I mean, it's a cliche for politicians in the US to say, We've got to simplify the tax system, but it's also true. But given what Bell and I were just saying about this really slow income growth in the middle, the question then is, okay, so what do we do about that? 
And the most effective thing to do is to use the tax system to just increase the incomes for those in the middle. And one way to do that is to reduce income tax. And so specifically we propose that a married couple can have a standard deduction of up to 100,000. And so if you're a couple and you're in less than six figures, then you don't pay income tax. That's a direct tax cut aimed at middle-class Americans. That would mean on average a tax cut of about $1,600 for middle-class families. It would massively simplify the tax code. And then, of course, you have to pay for that. And we pay for that by taxing what we call the three Cs, carbon, capital, and consumption. And what we're trying to do there is not only provide a tax cut to middle-class Americans, we also have a worker tax credit for lower-paid workers, but also to rebalance the tax system so that it's taxing the right things. (laughs) Actually, as a tax policymaker, you have to decide what are you going to tax? You have to tax something. And our view is if I were to tax carbon, which is driving climate crisis, and capital, which is much less likely to be directly earned, and consumption, then it is to tax directly the wages of middle-class Americans. There's another policy idea that I really like and should be very popular in the money section, and it pops up again in other parts of the contract, and that is scholarship money for service. Can you talk about how that kind of attunes to the money pillar of the good life? We recognize that one of the reasons that wages have not gone up faster than they have is because our labor force is not as skilled as it should be. And one of the best ways to improve productivity is to give people more education. That means more opportunity to go to college, but it means more apprenticeships, more training on the job, all kinds of skill acquisition. So we want to give people those opportunities. Going to college is very expensive. And we say, fine, that's going to be very expensive. That could potentially actually be unfair because most of the people going to college now are from more affluent families. But we can do this if we ask people to give a year of service, national service, for the right to go to college at government expense. Now, that means public institutions, could be a community college, could be a four-year public college, and it's for two years. So we're, again, trying to meet people halfway. We're saying, we want you to contribute to making this country run better. We want you to give back to your community. We want you to learn what it means to be a citizen of the United States. There are responsibilities as well as rights. But in the process, we are going to make sure that you have access to much more training and education. Let's move on to the second pillar, which is time. Of the five foundations for a good life, I was surprised most by the inclusion of time. So how do you situate that concept within your overall framework? Well, that's probably my fault that it's there. And uh, I think I can speak for almost all women in America when I say One of their biggest complaints is that they don't have enough time to do everything. There are so many of them, if they're parents, trying to do two jobs, one at work and one at home. And that's new. It used to be that most women stayed home and were full-time mothers and homemakers. And that has changed dramatically in the last half century. So the problem is policy hasn't kept pace with that. And it isn't just women, it's men as well. Everybody is feeling as if they are completely stressed out by having too much to do. Now, you could say, well, that's always been the case. After all, we used to all work 60 hours a week instead of the current 40. 
But it's very interesting if you compare the U.S. to various European countries, they have moved to update their policies and their practices such that if you are a worker, you are guaranteed a lot more paid time off than you are in the U.S. In the U.S., nobody has any guarantee of paid time off at the national level. There's some states that do provide it. So we say, let's give every American 20 days of paid leave per year for any purpose. You could use it to go camping. You could use it to welcome a new baby into the family. You could use it to build a boat in your basement. You could use it to take care of an elderly relative. We are trying to keep it simple. This goes back to our notion of pluralism. We're a very diverse country. One size doesn't fit all. This is a very flexible policy. Let me just add a couple of points on that, which is that it's become clear actually from our focus groups as well, but also just more generally that time is a neglected element of quality of life. And it's partly because of these social changes that Bell's talked about. Actually, according to some work that Bell has done with a former colleague, Katie Gio, shows that compared to the mid-1970s, the average middle-class couple between them is working an extra day and a half a week. That's a day and a half of extra work that middle-class couples are doing today. Now, that's largely because of the rise in women's employment, and everybody's in favor of that, no, not least of all, Bell and I. But we have to recognize the fact that does mean there's less time in that household than there was before. And you can be, even if you're money rich or money after, you can be time poor. And so the questions of how much time you've got, and I would add how much control you have over your time, the degree to which your time is predictable, and you can plan around it, have, are rising issues for the quality of life of American middle-class families. And it's much easier to talk about money. You said you were a bit surprised. We're all comfortable about money and tax distribution kind of stuff. Time is just much harder to get at. But of course, as Bell's pointed out elsewhere, that time actually doesn't expand. There are only 24 hours in the day. And so in terms of just sheer daily quality of life for the families we're worried about, it would have actually been hugely remiss of us not to take time at least as seriously as money. I worry that the idea of giving Americans even more time off really contravenes that old cultural impulse in America. I mean, from Benjamin Franklin to the present, that time is money. Well, good old Ben was right in the sense that if you stop working, you're not going to have any money. So there is a trade-off there. But what we're seeing is that we have made up for the lack of money in the middle class, the problems they're having with their income by sending more people to work. And as Richard just said, that helped to solve the money squeeze, but it created in the process a time squeeze. So we have to address both and we have to find the right balance between people having enough money and people having enough time. And our reading of the evidence and also of people's lives and what they say about their lives is that we've got the balance wrong right now. Before we move on, I want listeners to know that there are a lot more policy proposals in each of these sections than we have time to discuss right now. We could probably have a full podcast episode in each of the five pillars. But in the interest of time, let's move on to relationships. Can you talk about what the longer term trends are in relationships that you see as barriers to achieving the good life? 
Well, I'll start very briefly by saying that one of the most important relationships is relationships with one's own family. And here we're seeing some, I think, troublesome trends. Lots of people used to be married and marriage is declining, including amongst the middle class. This means less family stability, especially for children. Over a third of all children are now born into unmarried families, but typically now to cohabiting couples. That's quite new and something that we provide interesting data on, I think. But whatever the trends here, we have had a major, major shift in the way families form and the way they stay together. And we're not sure what the future will hold there. But we also address the issue of whether people are more lonely than they used to be. There's some evidence coming out of the COVID pandemic that mental health has been affected and suicide rates are going up and that this might be related to people feeling more lonely because social interactions have been curbed, especially amongst the elderly. We don't find a lot of evidence for a big trend there, but it's certainly worth some attention. And then finally, we look at relationships within communities and within the broader society. And we talk about a concept called social capital, meaning what is your relationship to your larger community? And we also find some troublesome trends there as well. Well, if I can follow up on that and getting into a policy solution that you touched on, can you expand on the policy idea of family planning, especially women having control of their reproductive lives. And you and I have had a conversation about this in regards to your book a couple of years ago that came out called Generation Unbound. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, thanks for the shout out, Fred, for my earlier book. You're quite right. I've had a great interest in this area. And really my concern is that marriage is declining and it may never come back. It may just be a Pollyannish to think that it is going to come back. So we have to find some other way of stabilizing and improving family life. And the major proposal that we put forward in the contract is the idea that people should choose when and if to become parents, not just drift accidentally into it. That will create much better environments for both adults and children. So how do you give people the empower? How do you empower women in particular to choose rather than to drift into parenthood. What we need to do is make sure that everybody, and I mean everybody, has access to affordable contraception that's much more effective than the kind of contraceptives that we had in the past. Right now, a lot of young people are still using condoms and the pill. That's fine. That's much better than nothing. But there are new forms of contraception that are far more effective because they're long-lasting and hassle-free and provide almost complete protection against pregnancy. Let me just add a note here. The way that this debate becomes politicized is very often unhelpful, I think. It can sometimes get mired in a discussion about family structure, marriage or not marriage, etc. And what it misses is the fact that it is entirely uncontroversial to pretty much everybody you talk to that kids are best raised in stable families by committed parents who generally plan to have them together. You struggle to find anybody 
that thinks those are controversial statements. The question then is, what promotes family stability? What helps couples to actually provide that stable foundation for the kids they want? And one way to do that is for them to have access in an equitable way to reproductive healthcare. Some things are that simple. This is an area of policy where Bell's been working much longer than I have, but which is, it is quite straightforward and it's genuinely a justice issue. It's genuinely a healthcare reproductive justice issue. It shouldn't be the case that upper middle class Americans can take for granted that they'll have access to these effective forms of contraception and for others will struggle to do so, but it's made hard by policy for them to do that. Why do we care about that? Because we care about family stability. And so if we could take some of the political heat out of this debate on both left and right, I would say, then I think it just allows us to have a conversation which is on ground that we all share. Families matter, family relationships matter, family stability is good. What are the things that promote those things? I want to close out this section on relationships by quoting a passage from the contract. Now, after you've talked about individual relationships and family relationships, you write this. When it comes to broader community relationships, however, the picture is bleaker. There has been a corrosive decline in social trust and increased tribalism of various kinds. Our social capital has been depleted. Well, I think that's right. Now, this is an area that's very difficult to study and analyze because who is to say what is the health of our communities writ large? But I think there is a growing feeling and quite a bit of data that suggests we are more divided. We have become more tribal. We don't respect each other enough. We have a whole chapter on respect, and Richard's been writing about that for a number of years now, and I think he's got it exactly right. And it is difficult to know what to do about that problem. Very difficult. And as Richard said earlier, there isn't a government solution for every problem. This may be an area where we really just need to start behaving differently and respecting one another more and being willing to be engaged in our community and to actually take action to improve our society as citizens. But one of the things we think could help a lot is national service for most young adults. So we have a strong proposal to actually provide more resources and more opportunities for young people to serve in their communities or in the military. And we have evidence that when people do serve and when they do get to know other people who are not like them, it changes their attitudes a lot, both towards people that are different from them, whether by gender, by race, by geography or class or anything else. And in the process, it strengthens the country and makes us a more solid community. I want to plug another one of your books here, Bell, because your discussion of national service reminds me of that. In your book, The Forgotten Americans, you also did focus groups with a bunch of different people. And I recall you saying that of all the different policy proposals that were on the table, the idea of national service was one of the most popular, if not the most popular, amongst everybody from all different kinds of political persuasions and backgrounds. It was definitely the most popular, and thank you for remembering that. I was amazed. I was surprised about how popular it was. And people also, by the way, liked the idea that you would get some educational benefits if you did your service. They understood that. They thought that was a really fair deal, a good contract, if you will. 
And I'm also pleased to say that these ideas are beginning to catch on. We even have some bipartisan legislation in this area beginning to be written. I think this speaks also to the challenges we have more broadly, actually, as a society about how to be different and together. What's a positive nationalism look like? And I think there's something of a danger right now that on long lines of both class and race, that we're drifting to a situation where we are content with being tolerant of each other rather than respectful of each other, rather than knowing each other, and rather than feeling as if, and I'm going to quote John Stuart Mill now, probably thought I would at some point, but the sense Is that... Is you a biographer of him? I am a biographer of John Stuart. We haven't mentioned my book about Mill yet, Fred, but... Um, I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks. So he said, our lot is cast together. And I actually do think that the American experiment generally does only work if there's more than just tolerance. We can't just coexist. It's not enough just to have communities living alongside each other. We actually have to some extent feel like our lot is cast together. And I think one of the reasons why Bell found such support for not only the idea of national service, but also what she calls an American exchange program, where actually some of the volunteers are living with other families in other parts of the country, is because of this sense of separation. And for a country like the U.S., there's only a certain amount of separation can take place before the whole experiment collapses, which I think is why service becomes important. And it's also not a controversial idea in other countries. Most Scandinavian countries have service, mandatory service. (laughs) So many of the countries that the left absolutely laud think it's completely uncontroversial that young people should perform service for their country. So it's not clear to me why that shouldn't be equally strong norm in the U.S. We want a society, we say this in the contract, where the question, where did you do your service? is as common as the question, where do you come from or where do you go to school? And that actually the person who doesn't have a good answer to that question might be looked at slightly askance. What, you mean you didn't do any service? What's wrong with you? And so it should really be a norm rather than an exception. Let's move on to health, the fourth foundation of the good life in the contract with the middle class. In many of the five pillars, but especially in the health one, we see the negative impacts of COVID-19. Can you talk about what the pandemic is doing, not in terms of directly causing illness and death, which in its own right is terrible. But what it's revealing about the state of health in our country? I think it's been like the flash of an X-ray over the U.S. It's exposed a huge number of fractures in the U.S., public health care system, et cetera. But to specifically talk about health, what's become clear is that the risks that are posed by the virus are greater for some people. And we're seeing huge gaps by class and by race and so on. To some extent, those are associated with pre-existing health conditions. So to some extent, the U.S. was like a big pre-existing condition. It exposed our failure as such an affluent and advanced economy to turn that affluence and prosperity into good health. In fact, on many dimensions, the health of the U.S. is going the wrong way. And that's extraordinary when you think about what a kind of rich, prosperous and plentiful nation we should be. And so it's really been a very sharp reminder that health comes before health care. And this is one of the points that Bell and I are at great pains to make, right? There's a huge debate about health care, but health is what really matters. And it's exposed huge differences in health and widening gaps in terms of health too. And so for that extent, although it's a difficult time to write in some ways about this, the COVID pandemic has, I think, if we needed anything to remind us how important health is, then this has done the job. It wouldn't be the way to choose to do it. But now thinking about how health is integrated into the rest of our society is unavoidable question now. I want to take the opportunity to 
build on that by reminding everyone that in addition to the principle of partnership and the principle of pluralism, another theme in our book is the principle of prevention. We are constantly looking for ways to build fences at the top of the cliff instead of having ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. I love it. That's a great analogy. And I keep thinking about that. As with all of the five foundations, you have, again, a lot of policy ideas. One policy idea in the health section that I think a lot of people are going to talk about is your proposal to tax sugary drinks. Can you talk about the rationale for that? And also, how would you address those who say that it's simply a matter of personal choice? Well, it's a great question. I think it will get some attention. And the same can be said, of course, of my choice to have a bourbon after this excellent podcast or to go and smoke a cigarette. Not that I will need to drink after this, Fred, don't get the wrong impression. It was champagne. There are many things that are a matter of personal choice, but there are also some things, and we've mentioned a couple already, where we recognize that there are health implications and we therefore want to try and help people to moderate consumption. And so a tax is a perfectly appropriate way to do that. It's an effective way to reduce consumption of a known bad. To the extent that that's infringement of individual liberty, okay. And so it's something that we have to think about hard, which is when is it appropriate to do that? Is it appropriate to tax tobacco and alcohol? Those are the right questions to ask. But I would put it in that category because the evidence for the impact of sugary drinks on Americans' physical health and the relationship to issues like obesity and diabetes is incontrovertible. And the American diet, and particularly the amount of consumption there is of those kinds of products, is really a very significant villain of the piece in terms of public health. And so whilst no one's suggesting banning these bads, it is entirely appropriate, as we do with other bads, to tax. And the evidence suggests that would reduce consumption. And by the way, it would help those on lowest incomes most of all, because those are the folks whose health will probably benefit the most. And so I think that that's an area where your public policy is straightforward, which doesn't mean the politics are straightforward, but this is an area where the politics have, again, have gotten badly distorted. I want to move on to the respect chapter for the rest of our discussion here, but I do, again, want to point out to listeners that there's just a wealth of really interesting policy ideas and great analysis in all the sections. In the health part in particular, you talk about deaths of despair and physical health and mental health and policy solutions for all of those. So I just want to signal to listeners that there is so much more in here that I hope that they will go pay attention to. Let's move on to respect for the time we have left. It's the fifth foundation of the good life. And this section seemed to me to most directly address the way that we relate to each other in society. And you open very sadly with the story of Emmett Till's brutal murder. Why do you open the respect section of the contract with his story? Actually, we've just passed an anniversary of Emmett Till's murder last month. And in the same way that the story of Emmett Till really helped, I think, force a reckoning around racial justice, we may be living through a similar moment now. But the reason why we start with the story of Emmett is because of the last thing that his mother told him before he traveled fatally to Mississippi, when she said, don't look the white folks in the eye. Don't look the white folks in the eye. And of course, much more than that happened. He was allegedly flirted with a white woman, brutally murdered and beaten. And his mother famously insisted his body be shown as it was found at his funeral. And the photographs of that young boy's body 
were a huge moment, I think, in American national consciousness. And as I say, I think we may be going through a similar moment now, but it was really that phrase, don't look someone in the eye. And why was that? And it's because looking someone in the eye is an act of mutual respect. You're supposed to look down in deference if you're lesser. If you're a woman in some parts of the world, even today, if you're an African-American in history, et cetera, you look down, you don't look me straight in the eye. To look someone straight in the eye is an assertion of moral equality. And actually, think about it the other way around. You might say you look down on someone. What does it mean to look down on someone? That means you're being haughty and looking down. And so there's something viscerally egalitarian about looking someone in the eye. And that's why Mummy Till told Emma not to do it because she knew that for a black boy to do that would be an assertion of moral equality, which in a racist society would be intolerable to the white people he did it to. And what does that tell us? It tells us that that's something we all aspire to. And so we start with that story, but then broaden that out into why is it that feeling equally respected, feeling like I'm your moral equal is so important. And it turns out that it underpins a sense of belonging. It builds self-respect. It's the basis for other kinds of egalitarianism. If you live in a society where certain groups can't look the other groups in the eye, I think you'll probably find a society where it's harder to vote or get an education or get decent welfare provision as well. And so it really is this fundamental kind of equality, equality of respect, which we think underpins lots of the other kinds of equalities which we talk about in this book. And again, to echo what Bell was saying earlier, right? We don't have a national respect policy. We're not going to magically produce the respect, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And again, it came out very strongly in the focus groups. It comes out very strongly in the work we've done with people is that if you don't feel respected, then it's very hard to feel that you have a good quality of life. And so we then build some policy ideas around that. But I think it's this really fundamental insight that actually a society that loses respect for each other is a society that's in deep trouble. You may not always like each other. You won't agree with each other for sure. But if you cease to respect each other, that triggers a death spiral. And we are very worried about some of the signs that there is a lack of respect across class and race and gender lines, even now in the 21st century in Europe. I don't want to take too long on this, except I think it's so important. And I think that Richard has learned how to talk about this in a new way that people really should read as well as listen to. So there's been so much conversation and debate around income inequality in America. And of course, income inequality is a problem. But if you think about it, relational inequality is the foundation of income inequality. It's also the foundation of a lot of our political problems. People who are liberal or conservative don't respect each other anymore. They consider the other side the enemy. We need to get beyond that, and that means respecting other people and the fact that their views might not be the same as yours. But how do we get to that point beyond that disrespect to what you call a republic of respect when it seems like respect is an arena for private virtue, something that we learn at home in our own families. We do learn it at home in our own families and try to model it, but it's not the only place we learn it. We also learn it in other institutions. We learn it from the social norms that surround us. We learn it in the thick of everyday life. And so actually the behavior of our leaders, whether they're religious or political or otherwise, is hugely important. 
because we tend to look up in that sense. What are the norms around behavior? And so it's very disturbing when you see leaders of one kind or another being so disrespectful of others because that normalizes disrespect. So there is a collective responsibility here too, but it's one of the reasons why we've built here in the contract on Bell's previous work on national service and why I've become such a strong convert to this is because actually working alongside people who are different to you and learning more about people who are different to you is a huge respect generator. It is just harder to disrespect people who you know. And we've seen that in a whole series of from gay marriage to various other social trends, which is to some extent, the area of our familiarity breeds contempt. That's not true. Familiarity breeds respect and lack of familiarity, distance, segregation, separation. That creates the conditions under which it's easy to demonize another group of people and thereby end up disrespecting them. And so national service, school and neighborhood integration, using our institutions from Brookings to any other institution you can think of, actually thinking, are we creating a genuine culture of respect? Not just a culture of tolerance, but a tolerance of mutual respect is something that is not just private virtue and families, nor is it going to be delivered through some sort of government force it, respect force it. You know, they're not going to put respect into the drinking water but it is something we have collective responsibility for. You know, I used to think that this idea that kambaya was a little fuzzy and not necessarily true. And I began digging into the serious research done mostly by psychologists on what happens to people's attitudes towards each other once you have more integrated activities. And the evidence is much more powerful than I would have ever believed that when you get more integration, whether through national service or whether in schools or workplaces or neighborhoods or wherever, people do learn to respect one another. They do stop stereotyping one another and you get a much more solid sense of community. One of the other policy proposals that you discuss in the respect chapter is one that I find just most beautiful. I have all the feels when I think about this one. And that's your proposal to require every American student to attend a citizenship ceremony before they graduate from high school. Can you talk about that? Well, it should be clear that that will be a decision that will largely made at school district level. So we're very attentive to the pluralism of education governance as well. But To some extent, this reflects the evidence for some of the attitudes that are hardening towards immigrants in the U.S., ironically, very often in the areas that have the fewest immigrants. But given the conversation we just had about the importance of integration, perhaps that shouldn't be a surprise. It's the places where you don't know any immigrants that it's easy to start demonizing and disrespecting them. But nonetheless, that is becoming a problem. And it's really just this question that Bell was talking about exposure and experience and just interaction. This is a real thing. This is not an abstract thing. And so actually, when it comes to things like respect and honor and knowledge, it actually does turn into quite a practical thing. So one of the proposals that we have in the contract is that high schoolers attend a citizenship ceremony, a naturalization ceremony before graduating from high school. And the purpose there is for those high schoolers to see what it means to become an American. And as someone who's been through a ceremony myself and attended others, they are flagrantly patriotic. The most patriotic thing you can possibly go to and everyone's in tears and it's an incredible moment, right? Because to become a US citizen 
is such a huge deal for most of the people doing it. And I actually think that the visceral sense you get from attending one of those ceremonies is so important. But I think every American should have that. If we're going to keep on with this cliche about we're an immigrant nation, how about seeing some immigrants come and become Americans? And how about everyone having to do that before graduating high school? And it's very hard to know what the effect of that would be. But our view is that it should create a different norm and maybe some different attitudes as to what it means to be American. We also suggest, by the way, that all high schoolers should take the citizenship test that everybody has to pass before they become an American. And that's quite an instructive thing to do as well. It's harder than some people think. I'll link to that in the show notes as well, the citizenship test. Well, we've talked about the five foundations for the good life, money, time, relationships, health, respect, how these all are tuned to building the middle class to the contract with the middle class. As we wrap up, I'd like to ask your views on what does an American society without a middle class look like? I think that it's impossible to imagine a country without a middle class that is also a democracy and is also a society that holds together. We have had people saying we are moving towards becoming an oligarchy in the U.S. Now, that's very strong. I'm not sure I want to go that far, but that's what you'd be headed towards. You'd have an elite class that's wealthy and powerful, and you'd have everyone else doing routine, badly rewarded work at the bottom. And we could go back to uh, feudal society as an example, although that's really a little extreme. Or we could simply think about what's going to happen if in America, the middle class continues on the same trajectory that we painted in our new book. Without a middle class, you just don't have the foundations for an economy. You don't have the foundations for a political system. And you don't have the foundations for the kind of social solidarity that I think any society needs. We make a claim towards the end of the contract that America can only be as strong as the American middle class. And I would say that's particularly true of America, because as we argued earlier in this conversation, America is a quintessentially middle-class society. And, and why is that? And I think this dystopia that Bell just painted is one that's becoming more familiar, at least as a fear, which is rich people and robots creating the economic value at the top and a few people servicing their needs and everybody else finding some way to survive. And what's lost there is not only the sense of justice in the usual way of thinking about distribution, but it is the sense that we all have a contribution to make. And I think what's fundamentally at the heart of this contract is the idea, and where we began maybe this idea is why it's with the middle class, is because there are two things at stake here. One is that you benefit in a fair way from the progress of society, and that we all do, including the middle, and don't get left behind. There is a sense of mutual benefit from the collective progress of society. But equally important, contribution, to be an equal contributor to that growth through your service, through your work, through your relationships. And it is both that idea of getting your fair shake, which we hear a lot of politicians talk about, but also both having the opportunity and the expectation of contributing. And if we lose the sense of a middle class that is both the fundamental engine of contribution, but also getting a fair share of the results of that, then I think all of the evils that Bell's just outlined might jump from the pages of dystopian novels to our actual future. And that's one of the things 
that we're trying to do our part in avoiding in putting this contract together. Well, Sahil, Richard Reeves, I want to thank you both for spending so much time with me today on the podcast. And also thanks to you both and to your team at the Future of the Middle Class Initiative for doing this very important work. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having us, Fred. Fun as always. Did you hear a policy idea you're interested in or didn't hear something you'd like to learn more about? Join the conversation by tweeting at Brookings Inst. That's Brookings I-N-S-T. Or at I Sawhill or at Richard V. Reeves. Cafeteria podcast is made possible with the help of an amazing team of colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKinnon for their collaboration, and Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs> <laughs>